Dear Lord, we live in ominous times, momentous times. We need to know you personally as our Savior and Lord. We also need to know what you've revealed in prophecy so that we can be prepared, that we can share with others your truth for these days. So bless us to that end as we again open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm clicking, but I'm not advancing. There we go. An amazing story. I don't know if you've heard of it. And I'm not going to pronounce this, try to pronounce this lady's name. But she lived in Hiroshima in 1945. And she lived 0.62 miles from the center of where that bomb detonated. There were 21 Seventh-day Adventists that lived in Hiroshima within what scientists would describe the kill zone. Not one of those Seventh-day Adventists perished. None of them needed any kind of treatment for radiation burns or illnesses of any sort. And this lady lived uh, at least 66 years beyond that and was a faithful servant of the Lord, a Bible worker. And uh, let me just ask, has anybody ever heard about this before? Anybody else? One. Okay. Well, that's good. But I, I don't know why this story isn't known uh, by everyone. This is a fantastic story. Seventh-day Adventists living a half a mile from where the atomic bomb went off that were unhurt. Everything around them being vaporized and their lives preserved. That should be something that 60 Minutes would pick up or somebody and, and uh, proclaim. Um, but it is true. Absolutely true. In fact, if you... Uh, did I put it on the screen here? Yeah. Just put in your search engine, Seventh-day Adventist Hiroshima, and you read all about this story. It's a true story. And it tells me that God is able to protect his faithful when it's according to his will, no matter what might happen around them. And when the times come that we're talking about, when Armageddon becomes reality, we'll need that kind of protection, and God will give that kind of protection. So just because we in our mind's eyes can't, can't feature how God could protect us in a certain situation doesn't mean that, that that's not possible. Nothing is impossible for God, and he will perform his promises. So our outline uh, in our last session here is going to be composed of these parts. The gathering, because it mentions the word gather a couple times in our text. The meaning of Armageddon, and then we'll take a look at some stories that took place at Megiddo. We'll explain why those are important. And uh, the title, Victory on the Mountains, has to do with what the word Armageddon means, which we'll discuss in just a minute or two. So the word gather is in verse 14, and it's also in verse 16. They are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle. Verse 16, they gathered them together. So there's a gathering feature in this prophecy and uh, it's going to be interesting to see what this, what this is all about. The word in the uh, original language is sinago. And if that sounds kind of familiar, it's because the word synagogue comes from that word. Sinago means to lead together. That's what's happening here. It's, uh, I guess we just read this. To gather them to the great day of God Almighty. Now, in, interspersed between those two verses is a very important verse. And that's verse 15. In my Bible, it's uh, presented in red type which means what? It's the words of Christ. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, keeps his garments. This is speaking to those who have the garments, but it's an encouragement not to, not to let the garments go. Lest he walk naked and they see his shame. 
And then verse 16, they gathered them together into a place called, in Hebrew, Armageddon. The Spirit is particularly pointing us to the background of this word to get the full flavor. So let's think about this gathering. What is it talking about? We find that there are four dimensions to the gathering process. There's a spiritual dimension in which everybody is going to have to make up their mind, make a decision. Then there's a physical dimension in which the wicked gather to attack the righteous. And that's probably more in tune with what Revelation 16 is talking about. There is a gathering that will take place when Jesus comes and we are lifted up to the cloud. We'll read some Bible texts that that pertain to that. And then after the millennium, when we might consider that being Armageddon part two, part of Armageddon at, before, at, at the second coming, part of Armageddon after the third coming. Armageddon part two, when the wicked attack the holy city after the period of a thousand years. So those are the four parts of the gathering. Let's take a look at each one individually. What is the, this, the gathering that has to do with the spiritual part of decision-making? is something that is going on. What does that mean? It's a bringing together into unity of thought and purpose. At the end, when probation closes, all decisions will have been made. There will only be two classes at that time, which will be the saved and the lost. We're not there at this point now. There are some people that are with God and some people that are against God, but then there's a lot of people on the fence. And one day this and one day that. That's not going to continue, though. At the end, there will only be two classes. And why is that? This is a unique circumstances, circumstance. We are in our journey of life in the process of making up our mind where we'll spend eternity, with God or not. But when we die, our brain no longer has the capacity to function, and therefore we can't choose anymore past that. When we die, our decision is final. There's no more changing of minds after that point. And that's why in Ecclesiastes it says, that in the place where the tree falls, which is a figurative way of saying when a person dies, there it shall lie. doesn't move anymore. doesn't change anymore. So when we die, our probation is closed. Now, if that were the only way that a final decision could be achieved, then life on this earth would go on and on and on and on because there will be more babies born that will have the chance to decide and the continue to have that chance until they die, and it would just go on ad infinitum. God can't let that happen. He wants to solve the problem of sin. In fact, if that were the way it was, it would show that God is, is, uh, does not have the power to fix it. But he does. And so at a certain point, we believe it'll be around 6,000 years of this life history when that time comes, which we believe will be very soon, God has to do something different to bring about a mechanism where people express their final choice before they die and while they're still living. But every single person on this planet will have had that opportunity to make that decision. And what is the device that will bring that about? It will be the the erection of the image of the beast. That will be the deciding issue where people will say, I want to be with God. I'm going to love and serve and obey him. He is my master. He's my creator. He's my redeemer. And that's where my final choice is. And there will be others that either will be deceived, like Eve was, and they will go along with the Sunday sacred law, or they will, with their full knowledge, say, I don't care, I'm going to do it anyway, like Adam. And that's the difference between receiving the mark in the forehead or in the hand. But that will be the litmus test. That will be the the fulcrum point 
upon which decisions are made for God or against him while people are still alive. So that's the point of this spiritual gathering, to bring everybody to a decision either for or against God, either in compliance or rebellion. So it's expressed this way in Revelation 17 concerning those that have chosen against God. They are of one mind and they will give their power and their authority to the beast, coming together by decision to support the system of apostasy represented by Babylon. Now, this was a picture just a few weeks ago, and uh, the current pope was featuring this T-shirt. And take a close look at it. See what it says. Okay? What did it say on the T-shirt? It said together. What's the word together intimate, a bringing into unity, isn't it? We're becoming one. Who's holding the shirt? Well, it's the pope, the head of the papal authority, the beast. But what's on the shirt? Whose flag is on the shirt? Did you see that? The flag of, I'll go back one, if I can. It's the flag of the United States. The false prophet. This picture that I just showed you is Revelation 16 in modern day reality. That's the beast and the false prophet appealing for unity and oneness, togetherness. It's Revelation 13's two beasts working together. We're living in amazing times. We're seeing this happen right before us. We don't have to be, you know, speaking in nebulous terms about these things anymore. Concrete pictures are right in front of us showing that this. What's going to happen in next year? Next year is 2000 and what? 17? What is that? Why is that significant? What happened 500 years ago? Protestant Reformation happened 500 years ago. So my question is, how is that going to be acknowledged next year? Will that be a reaffirmation of the principles of Protestantism? We believe in the Bible as the source of God's truth. Or will it be the end of the protest as what Tony Palmer and, and, the, and the Pope uh, agreed on? The protest is over, he said. That's a sad, sad thing. That's a fulfillment of Bible prophecy, though. It represents the bringing together of American Protestantism and papal leadership into a unity of mind. Here's what he said. Wear this T-shirt in unison... The word unison means oneness, doesn't it? And respond to the great restlessness. I invite you to a great gathering. Jesus is waiting for you, close quote. Well, unity is good. The Bible supports the concept of unity. Jesus prayed for it, that they may be one, that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, this verse right there, verse 21, we're going to hear a lot about in the near future. The current pope is using this as a lever to get uh, the ecumenical movement together and rolling. Pope Francis is saying that the divisions among Christians are a wound that needs to be healed before the world will believe. That's what he's saying. And uh, that, that wound occurred when Martin Luther and others separated from the mother church. What that means for you and me is that there will be immense pressure brought to bear for us to be part of that. What he's saying is that the blessing of God is being withheld unless you become one with us. And the world will not believe unless you give up your petty differences and come on board. Can you see why Sabbath keepers would be uh, the subject of uh, a lot of pressure in that situation? Absolutely. Those who refuse to join the religious movement sponsored by the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet will be called troublers of Israel, as was who? Elijah. Any similarities between Elijah back then? And the movement that God, that God has sponsored for today, lots of similarities. And this will be one. Accusation of being the holdout, the cause 
of all the calamities that are happening in the world, and particularly the United States. You are going to be blamed for that. I'm going to be blamed for that. We see tragedies happening now, left and right, almost every day there's something. What's happening in, uh, what is it, Tennessee now? Some deadly fire going on. And you can't turn on the news without some new thing happening, right? These things are going to increase. And there's going to be a swelling, a crescendo of a voice saying, we've got to get back to the Bible. We recognize from the prophets that these things are happening because we've turned away from God. That's true. But Satan is going to use that appeal to say, everybody's got to come together, and part of that coming together has to be a common day of worship. And the image of the beast is going to be erected. And those that say no and stand up like the three Hebrews are going to be thrown into the fiery furnace of temptation and trial. That's that's what's going to happen. But God will see us through. Don't lose hope of that. But we'll we'll be blamed. You are the cause of all these calamities. Repent of this sin of disharmony with Christianity and God will bless our country. Be prepared to hear that line of reasoning. Big push now to gather all under one banner, to have a one-world system. Call it globalism, ecumenism. They're all efforts in that direction. And unity is good. We recognize that. That's what Christ prayed for. But never if it was, is going to involve compromising Bible truth. That's, that's where we stand, right? Jesus said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring us peace but sword. That is, the result of our reaction to Bible truth will bring about this disharmony, maybe even in households. I have come, and the result is that a man may be set against his father, a daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and so on. Sanctify them through your truth. That's part of Jesus' prayer in John 17, too. Your word is truth, but the Pope is not quoting that part of Jesus' prayer when he quotes from John 17. He just wants to read verse 21 and not even all of it. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Both are important. Here's what Jesus said, the entirety of it, that they all may be one as Father, you are, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe. That's the type of unity that Jesus was praying for, but the Pope has abbreviated that And he is saying that they all may be one that the world may believe. But he's left out the other part where it means that we believe as as Christ is in his Father and so on. As you, Father, are in me and I in you. That's the part that's not being quoted as part of that verse. So we have the gathering that represents decision-making and bringing into either this camp or that camp, a word for that is polarization. We're seeing polarization in our world today, aren't we? Extremes on this side and the other. Elijah experienced that or brought that about. He brought a lot of people together on Mount Carmel. They gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel, and he called for a decision. If the Lord be God, he said, then follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. That's the appeal that's going out to the world right now. Choose God or choose Baal, but make a decision. I love this passage in Isaiah 60. Because it says that there will be many people, I say out there, not currently a part of our faith, who are going to recognize Bible truth. There may be some among us who will leave, but there will be many who come in. There are many people out there that love the Lord, and and they believe they're following the Bible. It has just not been opened to their eyes yet, the truth and the principle of obeying God. So, so, So simple. 
But Isaiah 60 tells us that the day is going to come. It says, Arise, shine, your light has come. The glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Glory meaning God's character. Darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness, or King James says gross darkness, the people. But the Lord will arise over you and his glory will be seen upon you and the Gentiles will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. That day is coming. I believe the Lord is even right now causing it to be that the name Seventh-day Adventist is put forth in a way that attracts public attention. Didn't we have something just a month or two ago where the story of a Seventh-day Adventist soldier uh, was put into the news prominently and and a film made about his life that brings Seventh-day Adventist into the spotlight. And didn't we have not long ago somebody that even ran for the presidency and somebody said, I'm a Presbyterian, I'm middle of the road. He's Seventh-day Adventist, what's that? And what happened the next day? Every major news organization put out a synopsis, for the most part, very fair, saying what Seventh-day Adventists were all about. God has his ways to bring the light to this darkened world. And you and I have the privilege of being part of this. It's going to be amazing. I will gather all nations and tongues. They will come and see my glory, and so on. Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 3, gathered all the peoples and magistrates together to worship the image. Significance in that story isn't there. So this gathering, the spiritual part, will bring all to a point of decision and result in either all receiving the mark of the beast or the seal of God. So there's a polarization of mind That results in two distinct groups. Then there's an assembling of the wicked to attack God's people, that gathering aspect. And uh, we read that many times in the Bible. There are stories where it talks about the enemy gathered together and wanted to attack Israel. In many cases, God brought a miraculous uh, victory. Sisera gathered together all his chariots and so on. The Moabites and Midianites. Interesting, in a lot of those stories you read in the Old Testament, there's a coming together of three components that attack Israel, as in this case. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east. Three parts. How many parts does Babylon have? Three parts. And that's reflected in a lot of the stories of the Bible. That happened uh, when, when, uh, when Jesus was put on trial as well. There was a gathering together. In fact, it says, the elders of the people assembled, same word, Sinago, at the palace of the high priest, and they plotted to take Jesus. There was a gathering to... Put, put out, to put down those, the, the one that followed uh, God's way. Now, in Acts 4, it's quoting from Psalm 2, and it says, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And many other passages that talk about this gathering. I seem to want to go two times for every click. It's not easy. Now, uh, the third aspect is when Christ comes and the wheat and the sheep are gathered at the second advent. That's that part of the gathering we definitely want to be part of. The mighty one God, the Lord, has spoken, called, for the, called the earth from its rising of the sun to its going down. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. Our God shall, keep, shall come and shall not keep silent. Does that sound like a secret rapture to you? It doesn't to me. A fire will devour before him and shall be very tempestuous all around him. He shall call to the heavens from above to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. What a beautiful passage, Psalm 50. A gathering into the cloud and a gathering for the purpose of destruction for those that 
have rejected the message of the gospel. In Joel chapter 3, it, it, it brings that out very clearly. Multitudes in the valley of decision or threshing, cutting, could even say concision. The day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. John the Baptist preached this. He said about Jesus, his winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly purge his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Jesus spoke about it. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate as a shepherd does the sheep from the goats. So there's that dimension of the gathering when the wheat and the sheep are gathered into the, the heavenly fold. I want to be part of that, don't you? Amen. Nothing in this life is worth not being part of that. Then there's another gathering aspect that takes place after the thousand years when the wicked are brought back to life. Satan tells them that he's responsible for bringing them back to life. I'm the one that gave you life to come out of the grave, he tells them. You owe it to me to be part of my assault. There's more of us out here than there are in there. We can have it. We can capture it. So he inspires the wicked to to, uh, gather into regiments, into battalions, whatever it is, and uh, with their implements of war that they, have, that they have invented or put together, I have no idea what that's going to be like. I have no idea how long the Lord is going to allow them to prepare for that battle. It might be a little bit of time. We don't know. But the attack will come. They will gather together. And then God will say, enough is enough. We're going to put a stop to this. Okay, let's think now about the battle of Armageddon itself. In Joel 3, in that passage, it talks about the valley of Jehoshaphat being the place where this gathering takes place. But there is no real valley of Jehoshaphat anywhere. But if you look at the term Jehoshaphat, you find that it means Jehovah is the judge. And remember what we said? When you look at the terms of Revelation, you want to look at the meaning of the word and the role that that played in ancient times. When we look at the term valley of Jehoshaphat, we see it's the valley of God's judgment. So we're not restricted to any one place on earth, particularly because there is no place called the valley of Jehoshaphat, but we recognize that that represents the gathering for the purpose of judgment that will take place when Jesus comes back. It's used because it means the valley of God's judgment. And in the same way, there is no place on earth called Armageddon. I know people use that term and speak of it, almost as if there is some place on a map that you can say, oh, there's Armageddon. There's not. So we're going to take a look at what the word means. The root and the role, those are the key. The root meaning of the word and the role that it played in the past. So here's the word Armageddon in the original. Armageddon, you might say. Har, the first part, means mountain. And the last part we're going to discuss three different things of what that can mean. But uh, it is closest to the word Megiddo. And uh, we'll find out that uh, it comes from a root that means to cut or slash. So you have the term Armageddon that means mount. Call it Mount Megiddo or Mount of Cutting. And there is no place actually on earth. The people that say that it is in Megiddo that it's referring to have a little bit of a problem because Megiddo is not a mountain. Megiddo's on a plain. It's on the edge of a range of mountains that comes down from Mark Common, but it's not a mountain. So it's a little bit of a paradox in the word itself to say Mount Megiddo. Megiddo, not a mountain or on a mountain, but is a town that was in the plain of Esdralon. You ever heard of Esdralon? 
Ezralon is simply the spelling that the Greeks gave to the Hebrew word Jezreel. Now, I know you might look at Jezreel and Ezralon and say, how in the world could that be the same word? But sometimes, sometimes strange things happen when you translate from one language to another. But when the Greeks came upon the valley of Jezreel and they brought it into their language, it came out as Ezralon. But it's just it's referring to the same thing. Northwest of Jerusalem, <clears throat> southwest of Lake Galilee, and on the edge of the Carmel Range. I have a map I'll put up in a minute that will show you. So this word is a contradiction, a self-contradiction, a, a geographical misnomer to say Mount Megiddo. Might be something like saying Mount New Orleans. That's pretty flat territory there. So that brings a challenge. We're forced to study it a little bit deeper. The Bible doesn't say that they gathered to the place called the Valley of Megiddo. It doesn't say that. It says that they gathered to the place called, in Hebrew, Ar-Megadon. So it's a coined word. It's a made-up word. And so because of that, we're directed to look at its meaning, especially because it says it's called in the Hebrew tongue. There. So we have three views that we'll present here as far as what the meaning and the significance of the word Megadon, the last part. Har means mountain. The last part is megadon. So let's, let's uh, think about three different things. Uh, there are some scholars who believe that this word is a, a, a reference to the Hebrew word moed, which means gathering or congregation. Uh, others believe that it's associated with the Hebrew verb gadath, which means to cut or slash. And then there are many that say, well, the word refers to megiddo, and it's pointing our attention to things that happened there in the past. So thinking about that first one, Moed, gathering or congregation, well, uh, that, that could have some validity because the Bible is talking about this being a gathering phenomenon. The word gathering is used two different times, so if it's the Mount of Gathering, okay, we can make sense out of that. Uh, we can think of the, the uh, mountain uh, in four different aspects, the gathering there. Uh, forgive me. We already talked about the gathering and its four different aspects, is what I meant to say. But with that in mind, think about this idea of the mountain aspect. Uh, it says here in Isaiah 14, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? You are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation. That phrase in Hebrew is very similar to the idea of Har Megadon, the mount of gathering. Mount of the congregation. So some people see a reference to uh, Lucifer's attempt to take authority that belonged only to God in that term. Uh, the second way of looking at it uh, draws attention to the fact that the Hebrew word uh, gavav is the root of that, and it means to cut or to slash. And that uh, appears numerous times in the Old Testament. It's sometimes translated cut or gather together or troops or... Uh, gather, and so on. Oh, wow. Uh, there was also an individual by the name of Gad, and there was a, a, a person that we're familiar with, Gideon, whose name comes from that same root. That uh, word is used in association with armies and troops because that's what they do. They cut and slash. So with that in mind, Armageddon could be the mount of cutting or the mount of slaughter or army mountain. Those would be ways that you could look at it. Gideon, as we said, has the same consonants as, uh, as does that term. And 
It's kind of interesting that in Gideon's story, that's what he did. He had to cut apart the image before God would bless him in defeating the, uh, the Midianites. There was a, a person that had the name of Gad, who was son of Jacob, and he was given that name because Leah, his mother, said a troop is coming. She was bragging about how uh, productive she had been in giving Jacob sons. There was a prophet by the name of Gad. You could think of that as being interesting because he had cutting words to say to his monarch when he sinned. So we have Gad as a, a, a root for that word, meaning troop or cutting. So maybe Armageddon should be looked at as being Army Mountain, the mountain of slaughter. And that makes sense because the Bible says that when Jesus comes, the slain of the Lord shall be many. Those that have rejected the grace of Christ, the gift of salvation, will be slain. So it will be like Army Mountain, the, the mountain of cutting. And we take a, took a look at the, um, the title of Cyrus, the ravenous bird from the east, and it brought to view this idea of, of the wicked being consumed by vultures. Revelation 19 speaks to that again. Now, the third view suggests that the last part of Armageddon is a reference to the town of Megiddo. Not because that's going to be a place where a big conflict will happen in the future, but, be, but because it's a place where many conflicts happened in the past, and many of those teach us lessons about how God delivers his people. That's the view that I favor. The name Megiddo is found 11 times in the Old Testament. One time it's spelled Megadon with an N at the end. And so this third view suggests that it's called Armageddon, that John made up that word to say Mount and Megiddo because back then everybody knew what Megiddo was, where it was and what had happened then. Many, many battles occurred in that place. And it can be seen as the place where there was gathering and there was slaughter. Not because of what will happen, but what did happen. That's the significance of it. So what happened at Megiddo? Why was it the place where so many battles took place? And uh, uh, many of them, who said, illustrated God's plan of salvation. Well, here's a map. I don't know if you can see it too clearly. Let's see if I can use this pointer here. But here's the Carmel. There's Mount Carmel right up there. Here's Sea of Galilee. Here's the Dead Sea. And uh, uh, Megiddo is right here. It's nestled up against the ridge, the Carmel Valley Range, right here is Megiddo. And the thing of it was is that there were caravan routes that uh, traveled from the north to the south, and they would typically go down the coastline here, but then you have this range, and uh, so rather than try to go over the mountains here, they found a place where there was a pass that you could go through the Carmel Range down in this area here. And Megiddo was a town that was located right at the edge of the mountain there. It was in the plain of Jezreel. This is the plain of Jezreel here, or Esdralon. And where Megiddo stood, it was right at the edge of where this pass was that went through the Carmel Range. And the, and the trade routes, the caravans that went down, would find themselves going through there. Well, obviously, whoever controlled that position, it was very strategic for them. So Megiddo was the site of many, many, many different battles. This is what it looks like uh, today. Here's a view from the foothills of uh, the Carmel Range looking out toward the, the uh, Valley of Jezreel. So we've said that the Mount Megiddo is, is actually a misnomer. In fact, in the Bible, it's called a valley. But nevertheless, we recognize that many, many things happened there in the past that illustrate uh, what God has in store for his people. And the Bible says, makes it very clear, whatever things were written beforehand were written for our learning, that through the patience and the comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. 
So the Lord is saying, if you want to know what's going to happen in the future, take a look in the past. There are plenty of stories that tell you how I am going to act in behalf of my people to redeem them. All these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition on whom the ends of the ages have come. So Megiddo is at the southern edge of the Valley of Esdralon, or Jezreel. It guards the access to the Megiddo Pass through the Carmel Mountain Range. It's along a major trade route that connects Syria to the north and Egypt to the south. And for this reason, archaeologists have uncovered at least 26 different layers of occupation. The town would be built up, it would be attacked. It would be brought to rubble, they'd build on it again. It'd be attacked. 26 different layers archaeologists have identified uh, as different uh, periods of occupation in this one little town here, poor Megiddo. So Megiddo, the place of slashing, army town, it was not far from other, some other towns that uh, shared that same fate. Beth Sheehan was called the House of Security or Fort Town, and Tanakh, uh, which means battlement. So their names all came from their experience of having undergone so many attacks, so many assaults. We remind you, there's no place actually called Armageddon. It's like the Valley of Jehoshaphat. We are called to look at the, symbolically at the words in the Hebrew tongue, it says. And the literal view of Armageddon being a, a place where the forces of China, Japan, or Korea meet up with the forces of the West, the United States, or whatever, uh, that just isn't what the Bible is talking about. That view ignores the beautiful me the message of salvation that God wants to see in us. The Bible is about Jesus. Revelation is a revealing of him and his plan. And the topic of Armageddon brings that clearly into focus if we have our spiritual eyeglasses on so that we can see through the words and phrases and see what it's talking about. Little Review ignores the issues of the end times. What is that? The issues are loyalty to God, his kingdom, and his law. The assault by Satan against God's people and Jesus coming to rescue his faithful. That's what the Lord would have us see when we read Revelation 16. There's a great event coming that will involve salvation and destruction at the same time. And we have passages that, that bring that out. Jesus' coming is a salvation slash destruction event. It brings salvation to the righteous, but it results in destruction to those that are not ready. That's been repeated many, many times in the Bible. The flood story, the story of salvation for those in the ark, destruction for those who are not. Sodom and Gomorrah, the story of the Exodus, the story of Cyrus's conquest of Babylon, all are salvation, destruction events. This passage in Isaiah is interesting. Watchmen, what of the night? Watchmen, what of the night? The watchman said, the morning comes and also the night. How can you make sense of that? How can it be the morning and the night coming at the same time? It's because the coming of Jesus will be the rising, the sun rising of eternal day for those that have followed him, but it'll be the settling of eternal doom for those that have rejected him. It's a salvation and destruction event at the same time. And Megiddo brings out the principles of this, of this story very clearly. It teaches about how God was saving his people. Remember that Revelation is a putting together of the pictures of the Old Testament to uh, draw that picture, Christ's redemption. So we're going to take a look very quickly at four different stories that took place at Megiddo. And the reason we're looking at these stories is because John put into the Revelation that when Jesus comes, it's going to be Armageddon, Armageddon. 
Mount Megiddo. And it's not because Megiddo is going to be important literally, but it's, it's taking us past uh, to where things happen there that illustrate what uh, God's plan is for us. The four stories we're going to look at are the story that had to do with uh, the triumph of Deborah and Barak against Sisera, Gideon's conquest, Elijah's victory, and Josiah's tragic death. They all happened in or nearby Megiddo. Story number one, story of Deborah and Barak. What happened there? Well, you have a hopeless situation. Sisera has 900 chariots of iron. You know what these chariots of iron were like? It means that not only was their chassis sturdy, but on the ends of the axles of his chariots were blades that extended out. So when he drove his chariots through the opponent's forces, it was like mowing ripe wheat to the ground. Not a very pleasant picture. And if you were an Israelite back then and knew that they had those chariots and they're going to be driving their horses through your army, it was not, not a very uh, encouraging prospect. But God promised victory. Despite overwhelming odds, you're going to be okay. That's what God said. Through his prophetess, that's interesting, through his prophetess, Deborah, her name means the busy bee, God said, I want you to do this. And so you read Judges 4 and 5, and you read that God brought about a tremendous victory. Well, what happened to the 900 chariots of iron? How come, how'd they become ineffective? Well, if you read the story very carefully, you'll see what happened. What could happen that would make ineffective chariots of iron? How about a sudden flash rainstorm causing all the terrain now to become a miry mudplain? How are the chariots of iron going to get around that? Can you see the horses struggling, trying to pull the chariots of iron? Now the iron is against them. It's a weight. And God's people want a tremendous victory. So plug all these... Uh, all these ideas in your mind as pertaining to what's going to happen at the end. Insurmountable odds, it seems like, weapons that are uh, uh, bent on destroying God's righteous, but God's going to intervene. That's what he's saying. You want to know what the future is? Take a look at the past. So God opens his arsenal, which can be the storm cloud, and there's a miraculous victory given. What happens at the end of that story, by the way? What happened to Sisera? How'd he die? Do you remember that? There was a lady by the name of Jael, and she took a tent peg and drove it through his temple into the ground. You could say that the enemy had his head bruised. Does that sound familiar anywhere? Is it somewhere in Genesis 3 where it says that the enemy's head is going to be bruised? So there are lots of things in these stories that God puts in there to remind us of what happened in the past as it relates to the future. And the story ends by saying, thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord. And where did this happen? The Bible says it happened by the waters of Megiddo. So God is saying, you want to know what's going to happen in the future? Go back to some of these stories that happened right there at Megiddo and see how I worked and saved uh, my people from what seemed like certain death. Megiddo story number two, it's a story of Gideon. Remember, his name means cutting, slashing. And he was up against a threefold union, the uh, Midianites, Amalekites, and people of the east. And they had a, an army that was vastly superior to his, 135,000. How many were in Gideon's force originally? 32,000. Well, that's four to one odds against you. Not, not uh, very encouraging. Even then, God said, your army is too big. I want you to make an announcement. Any of you that uh, don't really want to be here, maybe you got married in the last year, maybe you just bought a farm, anybody that doesn't want to be here, you can go home. And to... His shock and sadness, Gideon's ears were filled with the deafening sound of 22,000 people leaving. And God took a look at his army at 10,000 and said, you got too many, too many. 
If I give you the victory, you might be tempted to take credit. 10,000 against 135,000. No, the Lord said, I want you to bring them through this little uh, ravine, this little creek, and everybody that uh, just uh, goes, goes and gets down on their hands and knees and drinks up a lot of water, put them over here. But those that go through and just kind of go like this and lap like a dog and just take water out of their hands and continue going like they're ready for battle, then put those over. How many were that class then? 300. So the four to one odds against Gideon that where it began, 135,000 to 32,000, instead of four to one, it's 400 to one now because you got 300 against 135,000. But what happened in the story? Well, despite the threefold confederacy, uh, keep in mind that as a condition for Gideon to receive God's blessing, he had to get rid of false worship. He had to get rid of the symbol of false worship. But he took them out there, and they had these clay pitchers. Inside was a, a lighted torch. And he said, on my signal, I want everybody to break those clay pitchers. And so now all of a sudden around the hillsides, there's 300 of these torches lit. And the, armies, the army of the enemy looked out there and thought, wow, they, they must have a huge army out there. There's 300. But think of the sermon. Think of the sermon that's in that text when it says that the light shined when the clay vessels were broken. That's a sermon. Clay vessels, that's us. Brokens when we're humble and contrite before God. That's when the light can shine. That's when the enemy is going to be defeated. And the trumpets gave a certain sound. Does that uh, have prophetic symbol, symbol too? Of course it does. So all these things happened, and God used only a few, but others joined in after the battle began. That's an interesting thing. Do you know that when, when things come together, and when the image of the beast is about to be erected or erected, we're going to find that the prayers that we've been praying for our family members and those that were once among us that have left, they're going to be answered. And there are going to be many that are come to join us, just as it happened in Gideon's day and Jonathan's day. Many that come to join us and come back to the fold. Don't stop praying for those that have left the fold. You have family members that went to Sabbath school when they were growing up, but they're not part of the, part of the truth now. Don't stop praying for them. God's going to work great miracles to bring many of them back. There's going to be some surprises and uh, there's going to be many that were on that Damascus road, so to speak, persecuting that are going to be turned into missionaries like Paul. So many joined back in. And all this took place in the Valley of Jezreel, right there by Megiddo. Story number three, familiar to you, the story of Elijah on 1 Kings 17 and 18. What's the background? Well, there was great apostasy having to do with Baal worship. What was Baal worship? Baal worship was sun worship. Does that play a role in... in uh, uh, the modern scene, absolutely it does. Satan has used that to tempt people to worship the created rather than the creator. The seventh day Sabbath is in honor of the creator. The first day Sabbath is in honor of the created. So it's Baal worshiped in modern dressing that we find today. Deterioration of conditions that led to an accusation against God's servant Elijah. There was a drought that lasted three and a half years. Elijah prayed for that drought to happen. Strangest prayer in the Bible, I think. Lord, stop the rain. Don't let it rain. I've tried to appeal by them by any means I can, and they won't listen. So turn off this faucet. Turn off the spigot. Maybe you'll get their attention that way. They thought that Baal was the one that brought the rain. We need something to wake them up to the fact that that's not the way that it is. But for that, poor Elijah was accused as being the troubler, the troubler of Israel. The Achan, 
That's what the word is there in the original. You're, you're Achan, Elijah. Remember that story about Achan and the trouble that he caused Israel? That's you today, Elijah, because you're not going along with the system. That's going to play a role in the last day events. What does Elijah do? He repairs the altar of God. It had been there, but it had fallen into disrepair. And so Elijah repaired it. And after the revelation of the true God, the wicked are destroyed at the brook Kishon, a river that goes right by Megiddo there. Ahab goes through Jezreel to his palace in Samaria, probably through Megiddo and that pass, because that's, that would be the natural way that, that uh, Ahab would have gone. Now, story number four is a sad story. King Josiah's tragic death. If you look at the king lists for the northern kingdom, you cannot find one that was a good king. Every single one of them, uh, it, it says, uh, they, they followed in the footsteps of Jeroboam, the son of Nebad, who caused Israel to sin. Every single one of the northern kings did not live up to God. But in the southern kingdom, there were some good kings, and Josiah was one of them. And if you read his story, you'll find that he, he uh, brought back a Passover, which had been neglected apparently for a long, long time, and uh, cleaned up the temple, removed the altars of Baal uh, that had been in there, and there was a revival going on. And it looked like the nation was going to turn, and uh, good things were going to happen. You know, when Josiah died, it's only a few years before Nebuchadnezzar comes and attacks Israel. Something happened significant when Josiah died. It was the end of that possibility of a total reformation. How did it happen? Why did Josiah die? Did he die of a disease or old age or something? No, he died because of a very foolish decision. There will be people who will be lost because of their wickedness. That's sad. But there will be people lost because of their foolishness. That's even sadder. Josiah died because of his foolishness. Not because he was wicked, but he made an illogical, terrible, terrible decision. You can look up his story there in those texts there. When you do, you'll find that he was one of Judah's best monarchs, but he made a foolish choice in joining up with Babylon in their war against Egypt in 608 B.C. Now, if you know your Old Testament chronology, that's only three years before Nebuchadnezzar comes and takes Daniel and, and the first attack and so on. So Egypt was going to battle against Babylon. And for whatever reason, Josiah said, I, I, I need to be a part of this. I'm going to join up with Babylon. There's, there's significance to that, isn't there? I'm going to make my alliance with Babylon. And he was killed, the Bible says, in the valley of Megiddo. So there will be people who lost because of their wicked, but there will be people who lost because they're foolish. And the five young maidens were foolish. The one who built his house on the sand was foolish. And the rich barn builder was foolish. It doesn't say they were wicked. It says they made foolish decisions but they'll be lost just the same as Josiah died. Here we have the word fool, it's Nabal. You might remember that was the name of Abigail's husband. The Bible says, better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king. Who's the foolish king in that text? Solomon, the writer. Solomon started out being true to the Lord. The Lord said, what do you want? I'll give you whatever you want. He said, I want wisdom. The Lord says, wonderful. Because you asked for wisdom, I'm also going to give you wealth and fame and, and, uh, and success. And he did. And then later in his life, Solomon began to make some foolish decisions. And he began to be joined in alliances with marriage 
with uh, those that were princesses of other countries who brought with them idolatry. And it swept Solomon's heart away from the Lord. And he did some terrible, terrible, terrible things, even sacrificing babies to Moloch, one of their pagan deities. So, but thank the Lord, he came back from that. But don't let that be an excuse for us to say, well, I'll go the way of the world and I'll be like Solomon. Solomon's like the thief on the cross, you know, last minute decision for good. We can't, we can't take the chance of having our life like that. No, the Bible says, Solomon said, says, remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth. That's what he wished for himself. But nevertheless, he was, he was reconverted. But he said, you know what? Better is a, a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king. He recognized he made some very foolish decisions. And later on, Josiah made a foolish decision uh, that cost his life. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Esau made a foolish choice, bartering his birthright for beans. New Testament word in, in our language, moros, we get the word moron from it. <clears throat> so King Josiah was more foolish than wicked, but he died. He joined up with Babylon, despite being counseled even by the king of Egypt. This is not your war. Don't stick your nose in here. Go home. No, nope, I'm going to do it anyway. And because of that, he lost his life. Now, there's a little feature here. We're going to take just a couple minutes to trace this through. There's a little feature here that ends up in the book of Revelation. It says that there was a great lamentation for Josiah. And no wonder, he was a good king. He didn't need to die. Josiah, why did you do that? Our country could have been great if you just because his sons were what took the nation off the deep end. So they made a great lamentation, and it was like, it says it was a custom. It was a perpetual thing that went on and on. They made it a custom, lamenting for Josiah and his death. Now, Revelation 1-7, that says that there will be um, lamentation when Jesus comes. Let me read the verse here, 1-7. He will come with clouds, every eye will see him. Those who pierce him, all tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Revelation 1.7 is rooted in the story of Josiah and his tragic death. Let's uh, follow that through. Here's what Revelation 1.7 says. All the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. You go back to Zechariah, and it says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So we see a connection between Revelation 1-7 and Zechariah 12. Both contain ideas that they will look on me or see him. Pierced is in both and mourn is in both. So it seems pretty clear that, Ze that Revelation 1-7 is built upon what it says in Zechariah 12. Here's what the next verse in Zechariah says, though. In that day there will be a great mourning, in Jerusalem, like the morning at Hadad Riman, in the plain of Megiddo. It's a reference back to Josiah's death in Megiddo. That caused great mourning. And Revelation says when Jesus comes, it will be like that. There'll be great... Why? Because salvation was given to every single person on the planet. The provision for salvation was made available to every single person. And yet foolishly, people said, no, I don't want it. I'm too busy. The things of this earth are much more important and it'll be, they'll recognize the foolishness of that decision, and it'll be a mourning like when Josiah did. Josiah made a foolish choice. He joined with Babylon. He was killed in Megiddo. There was a great mourning because it was an unnecessary death, 
And it will be like this when Jesus returns, because many will have joined foolishly with Babylon, and they will have died in unnecessary death. So those are four Megiddo stories, and I believe that the Scripture is pointing us back and saying, if you want to know what it's going to be like in the future, you've got to check out what happened in the past. And for that reason, it's time to be on God's side today. Don't you believe that we're near when this is going to be wrapped up? It's gone so far. Soon Babylon, though mighty, will fall, and God will see us. Now, very last, quickly, victory on the mountains. We mentioned that the first part of that word is har, and that har means mountain. So why, why is that included in there? Why is it called Mount Megiddo? It's because so many things happened on mountains that were significant. God loves mountains, apparently. And so he's put that uh, prefix to the word. Now, here's the way that that word is used in the Old Testament. Mountains have always held a special place in God's kingdom. Uh, mountains prior to creation, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and at the end of time. What about the holy mountain prior to the creation of planet Earth? The Lord said of, of uh, Lucifer, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In God's throne room, apparently it was like a holy mountain. We'll have to wait to see exactly what that means, but it calls it a mountain. I will cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, we're told. So apparently mountains played a role even before uh, the earth was brought into existence. But concerning planet earth in the Old Testament, think of how many important things happened on, mountain, on mountains. Mount Ararat, that's where the ark rested after the flood, the place of salvation. Mount Moriah, that's where Abraham took Isaac up and was going to sacrifice him, but his arm was stayed. Mount Sinai, where God's law was given. Mount Nebo, where, he, where uh, Moses viewed the promised land. Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, where the blessings and curses were pronounced alternately when they entered Canaan. Mount Gilboa, where uh, Saul lost his life. Mount Perizim, where David won a great victory over the Philistines. And uh, a lot of these others too. Mount Carmel we took a look at. Mountains were special to the Lord, and because of that, his church is likened to uh, Mount Zion, and you find that in many places in the Bible. Mount Zion, God's special place where his church is. Jerusalem was, went too fast, Jerusalem was God's Beaumont. What does Beaumont mean? Beautiful mountain. Jerusalem was God's pretty hill, Loma Linda. So, given the idea of how special God, mountains were to God, you can imagine how disappointing it was that Satan came in and induced people to do all the idolatrous worship on the tops of mountains, the high places that we read about in the Old Testament so often. Very, very sad. In the New Testament, mountains were important as well. Mount of Temptation, of Blessing, Transfiguration, Mount Calvary, Mount Olives when he ascended, Mount Olives when Christ descends after the millennium. And Zechariah and Ezekiel point to that, to that great event. So the holy mountain in God's future, there are texts in the Bible that make it seem like mountains will play a role even when the problem of sin is resolved. So given that idea, given these ideas, we can see why the word Armageddon begins with the prefix mountain. Because mountains played such an important role uh, in Old Testament and in New Testament times and even in the future. Now we're going to conclude by a comment or two with respect to the message of God's love as brought forth in the subject of Armageddon. A lot of people, when they 
hear about Armageddon, they may not think about God's love. But God's love is, is a vital part of, of that message. Armageddon is God's love and his justice combined. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. In the character of God, there's a perfect balance between love and justice. I know Satan comes along and he wants to overemphasize one or the other and get an imbalanced picture of what God is like, but that's not true. God's love and justice came together in the Garden of Eden, in Noah's day, Sodom and Gomorrah, Cyrus's attack against Babylon, in the sacrifice of Jesus, and when he comes back. God's love is demonstrated in all those things. I saw this license plate. I love license plate. And this one, I don't know if you can read it. It says, do you follow Jesus this closely? Now, I saw this plate, and I could see something there. I couldn't quite make out what it was all about, so I had to pull real close to take a picture. Then my conscience kind of bothered me a little bit. But the message is a good one. Do you follow Jesus this closely? We need to be following Jesus pretty closely today, don't we? Because we're living in ominous, ominous time. Time to be on God's side. He will see us through. I saw this plate. I couldn't take a picture of it, but this is what it said. Can you make out what that says? Guide you home. That's what I made out of it anyway. Guide you home. And he will do that for every single one of us. God loves every single one of us as if we were the only person that needed salvation. And even though it seems like this episode of sin has gone a long time, from God's point of view, it's not. He's looking for a solution that will last forever. We happen to be privileged at a time when we believe that it's going to come to an end very quickly in our generation. I believe and pray and hope. And with that in mind, we need to be on God's team. We need to be on God's side. He's done so much for us, and he's asking so little of us just to give him his heart, give, give to him our hearts, and live a life that will bring honor to him. So I want to pray a prayer as we close. It's a prayer for myself, but if you feel like it's appropriate for you, you can say amen when I close. Dear Lord, today I feel ashamed of the way that I have misrepresented you in so many ways. So many times I've been foolish, as was Josiah. So many times I've been negligent, and I failed to live up to what you wanted me to do. Lord, I pray for your mercy and your forgiveness today. I pray that you will take my heart and break up the fallow ground. Make it soft. Put your seed of the gospel in it. Let it grow into a plant that bears fruit to your glory. And Lord, I pray that on that day I will stand true for you, no matter what the test is, that your character may be seen in my life. And by your grace, Lord, be taken, be gathered together with you, with the rest of the saints into that cloud, to be taken home to the place that you've prepared. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to say just one or two words about the books that we have.